This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. You must remember A kiss is just a kiss A trial Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. Just sex, not love, just sex. And sex just isn't cool without condoms for protection. You're a hooker. He talked about pornographic material. Sex, you gave me a lot of pleasure. So we can show the sex act all over the place. Sex in the night. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. In last week's episode, we talked about Adrian Lyne's Lolita, a film adaptation of what most would agree is history's greatest literary text about an adult man's sexual obsession with an adolescent. That film was re-edited to comply with a new federal anti-child pornography law, which stipulated that it was illegal to depict people under the age of 18 in sexual situations, even if they were played by adult actors. Lolita was rejected by every major Hollywood distributor out of fear that its subject matter would prove toxic at the box office. It was finally shown on Showtime and released in a small number of theaters in September 1998. As I noted last week, what happened with Lolita? Line referred to it as the de facto banning of the film by every studio in Hollywood, was not a signal that everyone else in popular culture had stopped sexualizing teens for money. Quite the opposite. In some sense, we could think of Lines Lolita as the scapegoat that had to be sacrificed in order to allow much more commercial projects slash products about sexy teens projects that were far less despairing than Lolita about the consequences of adults fetishizing minors, to thrive. 
While Lolita was struggling to find a distributor and overcome the impression that it was child porn, much of the rest of the entertainment industry was in the process of betting big on content about teens and preteens. And much of that content centered sexuality. In June 2001, Entertainment Weekly ran a cover story by Josh Woke called Pop Goes the Boom. For the past five years, wrote Woke, whether in music, movies, or TV, teenagers have been the darlings of the entertainment industry. With 1996's Scream, Dimension Films kicked off a collective bar mitzvah. Today, you are a marketing target. The ostensible point of this story was to track the diminishing returns of both teen music, sales of Backstreet Boys albums were dwindling, and movies, with new films from stars minted post-Scream, such as Freddie Prinze Jr., unable to match the big opening weekends of their breakouts. But historically, the article functions as a kind of seventh-inning stretch in-game recap of a trend that had just a few years left before it spectacularly flamed out. The article included a timeline of the teen boom, beginning with the opening of Scream in December 1996. Three months later, Buffy the Vampire Slayer premiered on TV, making a star out of 19-year-old Sarah Michelle Gellar, who would go on to anchor the hit films I Know What You Did Last Summer and Cruel Intentions. In the second season of Buffy, 17-year-old Buffy loses her virginity to an ancient vampire and immediately suffers devastating consequences, a tried-and-true tactic for teen TV to have its cake, i.e. showing that teenagers are sexually active while demonizing it too, in this case very literally, so as to not alienate conservative viewers and advertisers. The makers of Cruel Intentions didn't have to worry about ratings and ad sales, but they still carefully calibrated their messages about the sex lives of teenagers to make it seem like they were going too far without actually going much of anywhere at all. Cruel Intentions is extremely explicit in terms of dialogue, which indicates that its characters are having a lot of sex, but the most graphic image on screen is of fully clothed dry humping. And ultimately the dialogue is insanely homophobic. The plot demonizes a young woman for having multiple sexual partners, martyrs an even more promiscuous young man, and equates bisexuality with corruption. Just as Geller's character is a toxic tease, promising Ryan Phillippe's character that he can put it anywhere, and then ultimately not allowing him to put anything anywhere at all, the movie alludes to teenage debauchery, but ultimately holds up the status quo, both in terms of conventional sexual morality and in towing the line of how Hollywood movies police what the MPAA termed aberrant sexuality. Anyway, back to the teen boom timeline. A few months after Buffy premiered in December 1997, Titanic began its run towards its reign as the highest grossing film of all time, with a box office tally that was built largely by girls under the age of 18 with crushes on Leonardo DiCaprio, then 23. Dawson's Creek debuted on TV a month after that. And then, about a month into the next school year, 
The video for Baby One More Time debuted on MTV, launching Britney Spears, then an unknown 16-year-old from rural Louisiana, into superstardom. Rolling Stone later named it the greatest debut single of all time, calling it, quote, one of those pop manifestos that announces a new sound, a new era, a new century, but most of all, a new star. This was six months after Columbia Pictures, a legacy Hollywood studio, released a movie about high school students having sex with an adult staff member at their school. Released in March 1998, while Titanic was in the last legs of its historic 15-week run at the top of the box office, Wild Things was a minor hit, grossing $30 million domestically on a $20 million budget. With its opening weekend gross even higher than those of her previous hits, The Craft and Scream, it cemented Nev Campbell as a star who could open a mid-budget movie. She was also still playing a teenager on TV's Party of Five. Two years earlier, when her character was 16, her plotline involved having sex with her boyfriend, becoming pregnant, and miscarrying. Though technically that should have violated the Child Pornography Protection Act, no one seemed concerned. Today, we're going to talk about wild things as a kind of anti-Lolita, that still perpetuated the 90s Lolita tropes that we've been talking about all season. And we're going to track those tropes to the end of the decade, the end of the century, through other cultural phenomena, particularly Britney Spears. Join us, won't you, for part 19 of Erotic 90s. Over the years on this podcast, we've talked about the original wave of film noir, which began during World War II and flourished into the 1950s as the darkness that a society with collective PTSD was trying to repress emerged via stylish films usually involving femme fatales luring average men into some kind of criminal activity. In erotic 80s, we began talking about neo-noir, films made in the 80s which attempted to update the template of 1940s noir for a more sexually permissive production climate in Hollywood. That included movies like Body Heat or The Postman Always Rings Twice. You could also call American Gigolo a neo-noir, but what Paul Schrader is doing with that film feels somewhat different than, say, the update to Double Indemnity that Lawrence Kasdan is doing with Body Heat. American Gigolo's focus on surfaces, its subversion of tropes of classic noir, its protagonist who seems to have no fixed identity and who slips between markers of gender and criminality, a general intentional confusion as to what constitutes the truth or the real. All of this aligns it with postmodernism. American Gigolo is maybe not the first postmodern noir, You could call Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, which predates American Gigolo by two decades, a postmodern pastiche of Hollywood noir. But on the simplest level, to say that a film or a work of art is postmodern is to say that it incorporates self-reflection on itself as a work of art, as a production. American Gigolo is, for most of its running time, a film about performance which highlights artificiality, and so that qualifies. 
But at the end of its narrative, American Gigolo swerves away from this kind of postmodern distancing and dives headlong into the most classical sincerity, a sudden show of faith in the possibility of human connection and spiritual enlightenment, and Paul Schrader's career-long tendency to do both is what, to me, makes him such a special filmmaker. Postmodernism is difficult to do in cinema because audiences are so trained to have emotional experiences with filmed narratives. And every time you draw an audience's attention to the fact that they are watching something constructed, you disrupt their suspension of disbelief, and you run the risk that they will stop caring. A way around that problem is to continually disrupt the viewer's suspension of disbelief by pulling back the curtain, by telling them what they had been investing in was a lie, and now they're going to see the truth. If you do it right, and you're lucky, your audience won't care that every curtain pullback only reveals another curtain until it's too late. This is what director John McNaughton and writer Stephen Peters pull off with Wild Things, a film that was successful enough in concept alone to spawn three direct-to-video sequels, and which I think only works when thought of as a work of postmodern noir. Released almost at the end of the 20th century, and playing on its audience's presumed consumption of half a century worth of noir fiction. Wild Things is ultimately an extremely superficial film, but to complain about that is to miss the point. Though not exactly a spoof in the tradition of something like Hot Shots, Wild Things does line up for mockery, a number of themes that other films and cultural events we've discussed took very seriously. In that sense, this meta-film also serves a meta-purpose of, for better or worse, offering a release valve for a culture that some felt was stuck in politically correct paralysis. We see this in Wild Things' first scene, an assembly at a Florida high school where cops played by Kevin Bacon and Daphne Rubin Vega have come to give a presentation about sex crimes. The assembled students holler and boo when hunky guidance counselor Sam Lombardo, played by Matt Dillon, writes the term sex crimes on a chalkboard. We've all heard the terms date rape, sexual harassment. We've discussed some of these issues right here in this very room. Our guest today come from the Blue Bay Police Department. Detectives Duquette and Perez are here to give us what we hope will be a fresh perspective on the subject and to address any questions that any of you might have. Now let's give them a warm welcome. Thank you, Mr. Lombardo. I'm out of here. Why don't we begin with a question? This prick can kiss my ass. As I was saying, why don't we begin with a question? What is a sex crime? Not getting any. The female voice you heard in that clip was Nev Campbell playing school rebel Susie. Laughing at both the woke and the anti-woke, 
The movie tells us here in the first scene that faux solemnity over sex crimes is not something we should take seriously. Here is where you should stop listening if you haven't watched the film yet and want to do so without spoilers. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The action of the film starts when sultry rich girl Kelly Van Ryan, played by Denise Richards, tells her blousy heiress mother, played by Teresa Russell, that guidance counselor Sam raped her. Shortly thereafter, Nev Campbell's Susie, a goth burnout with a bad dye job who lives in a trailer, tells the cops who came to their school to speak about sex crimes that she was raped by the guidance counselor too. Both girls recall that their older assailant couldn't finish the sex act and nagged them with a strange comment. The same, but for one word. He said, no little girl can ever make me come. He said, no little bitch can ever make me come. The case goes to trial, with Sam represented by a strip mall ambulance chaser played by Bill Murray. On cross-examination, Susie's story falls apart, and she admits that she and Kelly made up their accusations of rape. Kelly's mom is then forced to pay Sam a hefty settlement by liquidating a trust fund that her daughter was due to receive on the mom's death. Why would these teenagers make this up? The first twist of Wild Things comes after this settlement, 
when Sam, Kelly, and Susie meet in a motel room and reveal that they were all in on it together, and they're all expecting to share the $8.5 million payout Sam received from Kelly's mom. The trio celebrate with sex, and though the ensuing threesome scene is pretty tame and generally plays like a very short clip from Red Shoe Diaries, there are a couple of images in it that seem worth noting. Kelly wears a pleated skirt, Mary Jane's, and Bobby socks a la Lolita to this threesome, and McNaughton includes a seemingly straight-faced shot of her panties being removed from under the skirt while the socks and shoes stay on. We know by this point that the character is 18, and we can tell that Denise Richards is older than that, but in costuming the character as a schoolgirl, the filmmakers seem to want you to imagine that she's younger. In that sense, they got what they wanted. In her New York Times review of Wild Things, Janet Maslin called Richard's character a nymphette extraordinaire and categorized her as part of a well-developed Lolita squad. This is similar to what we talked about earlier this season with Drew Barrymore who began performing sexuality for an adult gaze in public and in movies as a teenager, and then when she was 19, did a Playboy shoot full of tropes associated with the sexualization of children. Baby barrettes, baby tees, lollipops, etc. It is legally permissible for adults to have, or imagine having, sex with people who are over the age of 18. But... When the sexualization of those of-age women is comprised of clothing and accessories associated with childhood, does it really matter that the women are months beyond their 18th birthday? As we discussed in our last episode, this was supposedly a moment when the culture was resolved to do something about child abuse and child porn. But that something was not removing the trappings of childhood from porn or softcore. The porniest shot in the scene features a still-clothed Campbell pouring champagne on Richard's naked breasts in an image that feels very Showgirls-esque. By the time Wild Things came out, three years after Showgirls, Verhoeven's movie had not yet been reclaimed by audiences and was still widely seen as a joke. But viewers in 1998 took this threesome scene seriously and as seriously titillating, at least on first viewing of Wild Things. And that's interesting. This was a cultural moment in which straight-faced depictions of sexuality in movies had become unpopular and, to borrow more recent slang, cringe. Ultimately, Wild Things says, you can't take anything seriously. You can't trust anything you see. But to keep viewers from understanding that too early on in the movie, it distracts them, sometimes with violence, but often with sex. Another sex scene between Richards and Campbell recalls Showgirls again in its girl-on-girl coupling, its over-the-top emotion and violence, and its setting in a swimming pool. This is just one example of how Wild Things seems to borrow shamelessly from a grab bag of references, some that would be more familiar to viewers than others. 
The score at times is reminiscent of the distinctive music of Twin Peaks, which is, in its own way, a fantasy-slash-nightmare noir about the sex lives of teenagers. But in a film that is constantly revealing reality to be an illusion, Wild Things also fudges any hard and fast rules about the sexual viability of teenagers that a viewer might walk in with. This is a film that borrows a vibe from 80s teen sex comedies such as Porky's and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and then eliminates the vulnerability behind adolescent sexual bravado by casting performers who are in their mid-twenties and look it. This is one answer to the question of why Lolita, starring a 15-year-old actress and an adult body double, got mired in post-production hell trying to avoid running afoul of the Child Pornography Prevention Act, and Wild Things seems to have not paid that statute any thought, other than an ADR'd line offering the disclaimer that the high school seniors played by 26-year-old Denise Richards and 23-year-old Nev Campbell had passed their 18th birthdays. But also, Lolita, as we've discussed, takes place in the mind of a pedophile. Wild Things, instead, takes place in a high school of the mind, playing on a collective fantasy in which the lines between adult and minor are porous, and toggling back and forth between indulgent adult fantasies of sex with teens and revealing the consequences of letting libido rule. After the audience knows that the two high school students and their guidance counselor collaborated on the scam, the film follows Kevin Bacon's detective as he tries to prove his hunch that they were all in on it together. We think we see Sam killing Susie, ostensibly so that he and Kelly can run off together and split the money two ways instead of three. And then Bacon's cop goes to question Kelly about Susie's death and ends up shooting her. And then Sam enters his hotel room at a beach resort and finds the cop in his shower. In addition to a brief but not negligible shot of full frontal Bacon, here we learn that the cop and the guidance counselor worked together to get rid of the two girls so that they could share the money. Then they go out on a boat together, and Nev Campbell shows up with a new blonde pixie haircut and a harpoon, which she uses to get rid of the cop. Then she poisons the guidance counselor and sails his boat away. The end credits begin, as do a series of mid-credit scenes which explain exactly how the girl from the wrong side of the tracks orchestrated everything we've just seen. For a film that sought to play by the conventional rules, this would be considered cheating. And in fact, that was how it was received by some critics. The press has been sternly advised not to give any of these developments away, and I shall obey, wrote David Denby in New York Magazine. Though I can't help pointing out, the twists are so abrupt and mechanical, and so little related to character, that they may very well have been devised by a dirty-minded 10-year-old diddling an interactive video game before nodding off to sleep. I would agree that the information revealed in Wild Thing's corkscrew structure isn't exactly revelatory, but the sheer number of the twists seem to reveal that there is no such thing as character, at least not in any kind of stable way, 
because everyone can remake their public-facing identity, if not their real inner selves, at any time. And that feels like an aspect of Wild Things that was ahead of its time, or maybe more accurately, tapping into something of its time that few were acknowledging on a mainstream level. Except for showgirls, that is. Postmodernism isn't just a structural tactic for art. It can also govern the worldview of said art. Wild Thing's postmodern approach to story allows it to break from the moral traditions of noir and other genres inherently shaped by the censorship systems of classical Hollywood. In a conventional noir, a femme fatale seduces a man down a criminal path, and the price of the sexual liberation this entails is the death of the con woman, the mark, or both. In Wild Things, the femme fatale, who we didn't know was the femme fatale until the last scene, comes back from the dead, kills everyone except her lawyer-slash-money courier, and walks away alone, rich, and happy. The movie doesn't suggest that Campbell's character has any remorse, nor does it suggest we should judge her. Those conventional rules don't apply. We cheer the fact that she has used con artistry, sexuality, and murder to liberate herself from the class structure and the patriarchy. Even her bleached blonde pixie cut, somewhere between bombshell and cyberpunk, suggests a remaking of the 20th century for the 21st. Wild Things is kind of stupid, kind of shallow, and doesn't really hold up on repeat viewings. But it also has the spirit of revolution. Wild Things was released into a minor revolutionary Hollywood moment. As the indie film boom of the earlier part of the decade lost steam, with most of the significant distributors of indie films becoming subsumed by corporate parents, the cultural climate was remade by a mainstream film that was released by former indie-turned-Disney subsidiary Dimension, run by Bob Weinstein, Harvey's brother. That film was Scream, Wes Craven's postmodern update of the teen horror movie, which relies on the viewer's understanding of the tropes of the genre so they can delight in the ways in which Scream does and does not subvert those tropes. Wild Things is essentially doing the same thing to both noir and erotic thrillers. It's like Scream in that the audience is constantly being misdirected away from the real and that its series of twists and turns erase so much perceived meaning that in the end, the only thing you can really hold on to is faith in the last woman standing, which, in both films, is played by Nev Campbell. But obviously, Scream was, and is, the longer-lived endeavor. Wild Things didn't lead to a reinvention of the erotic thriller for ironic times. If anything, it was one of the last gasps of that genre before its death knell. What it did do is show a way forward for the sexualization of teens in movies, TV, and music in ways that would go way beyond what we had seen before, while still staying within the guardrails of an increasingly conservative culture. Wild Things got some key advanced press coverage, including a set visit report in Entertainment Weekly. Reporter Benjamin Svetke was invited to watch the filming of the threesome scene, 
and reported that despite the nudity in that scene, and in the other scene featuring Bacon naked, the MPAA, quote, amazingly gave Wild Things an R without a single request for a cut. I can tell you why I am not amazed that Wild Things didn't have trouble getting an R rating. For one thing, though two scenes suggest that Campbell and Richard's characters have sex with one another, because both women also have sex with men, and their characters are also revealed to be liars and performers, we can get the impression that the gay sex isn't quote-unquote real. Certainly, though in some ways, Nev Campbell's character is coded as queer, especially in contrast to the ultra-normative femininity of Denise Richards. The physical contact between the two actors seems to align with a concept we discussed in our Lesbian Chic episode, in that it feels like a treat for the male gaze rather than a threat to men. Though the threesome scene might be deemed unacceptable in another film, due to the MPAA's rejection of what they called aberrant sex, within the context of this movie, it becomes something other than a sex scene. It's a metaphor for the ways in which each member of the trio believes they are screwing another. And the shot of Bacon's penis is allowed to pass because it is not seen in a sexual situation. We just get a glimpse as he's getting out of the shower. But in a film that relied so much on shocking the audience out of any complacent idea of its characters' identities or their loyalties to one another, the fact that Bacon and Dylan are revealed to be in cahoots with one another, but not literally in bed with one another, struck some as conspicuous. As Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman wrote in his review, Bacon is, quote, featured in a moment of full frontal nudity that seems gratuitously daring for a studio thriller. It left me wondering why the film didn't go further with its bisexual implications, as if such activities are encouraged only when they involve babelicious lesbians. Bacon soon thereafter confirmed that the original script, which he likened to a porno novel, included at least the implication of sex between his character and Dylan's, who in the screenplay actually got in the shower with the cop rather than just handing him a towel as he emerged. There was a sexual encounter between the two in an original draft, Bacon said, but suddenly everyone felt they needed to be logical, not mentioning that lesbian sex is highly popular with a straight male audience and gay male sex is far too frightening for that targeted age group. As director McNaughton acknowledged while celebrating the film's 25th anniversary, they were supposed to look each other up and down and then wham, go at it. In a 2005 interview, when asked if he had wanted to film the scene as scripted, Dylan said, no, I didn't. Man, I was relieved when they got rid of that scene. Kevin seemed pretty attached to it though. The nonchalance of the male nudity from an established star, Bacon was first billed on this film and credited as one of its producers, was unusual enough even without a gay male sex scene. In his LA Times review, Jack Matthews wrote, The real push against the ratings envelope comes from Bacon, who has what may be the most gratuitous male frontal nude scene in a major studio movie, proving that when you're the executive producer, size does matter. Two weeks later, the LA Times published a letter from Wild Things producer Rodney Lieber, commenting on the wealth of attention that had been given in the media 
to the two-second shot of Bacon's penis. Maybe we were naive, but we didn't think it was that big a deal, no pun intended, Lieber wrote. Boy, were we wrong. Virtually everyone labeled this shot gratuitous and made it a point to mention it in their reviews. So much for our attempt at equal exposure. A film that actually gave equal time to the male gaze and the female gaze, the straight gaze and the gay gaze, would have been a big deal in 1998. But Wild Things wasn't that film. Wild Things may be narratively subversive, but aside from that brief glimpse of penis, it's not in any way sexually subversive. It gives the idea of no-limit sex, but ultimately holds back from visualizing anything sexual that would challenge the status quo. It's less subversive sexually than most of the films we've talked about this season, and yet it was still treated by the media like it really pushed the envelope. I don't want to get any postcards telling me this movie is in bad taste, wrote Roger Ebert. I'm warning you, it is in bad taste. Bad taste elevated to the level of demented sleaze. This, by the way, was a three-star review in which he praised, quote, a sex scene with Denise Richards that is either gratuitous or indispensable, depending on your point of view. In The Village Voice, Amy Talbin called it exuberantly trashy and a lot of fun until it goes overboard and drowns in its own plot reversals. Even Gleiberman, after questioning the lack of equal opportunity bisexuality, added, Wild Things isn't nearly as wild as it pretends to be, but it does prove that a little erotic nastiness always looks good, especially on the most unblemished of stars. Emphasis on the little and the unblemished. One of the reasons why Wild Things is not more explicit is because Nev Campbell had enough power by this time to contractually refuse to do nudity. You wouldn't believe the stuff that goes into the contracts, she told one interviewer. No side of breast, no nipple, small of back. But you have to set the boundaries before you go on set so you don't get on set and have the director say, well, why don't you just do this? It's done already. I am keeping my clothes on, she told Rolling Stone about the threesome scene, explaining, it's not about graphic sex, it's more about the characters and how lost and free they are. Rolling Stone reporter Jancy Dunn amended her own one-word comment to this quote. Jeez. In the pop culture of 1998, Nev Campbell was made to seem like a prude for setting limits up front about how her body would be filmed. But this was the direction the culture was moving. A tease of sex, especially from a young person, was enough to build a campaign on, and if the case could be made that there wasn't actually anything untoward going on, so much the better. For instance, if a teenage pop star's career was to be built on Lolita aesthetics and apparently free-flowing sexuality, but the pop star herself insisted she was really a virgin, that would be a home run. But we'll get there. In March 1999, Variety reported that Columbia, the studio behind both Wild Things and Cruel Intentions, had been disappointed that the latter had received an R rating. The pick had been aimed at teens and grossed a strong $13 million in its opening weekend, wrote Dan Cox. But one Sony exec speculates that it could have been through the roof, 
if it had been PG-13. Forget about NC-17. Now, even the R rating wasn't considered commercial enough. The amount of money that could be made marketing only to adults just wasn't enough anymore. The game would become, how do you give the illusion of enough sex to get people interested and still get a rating that allows those people, i.e. teens, to legally see the movie? Given this imperative, just as movies made under the production code might show characters breaking the rules, only to reverse course and ultimately embrace the most conventional concepts of heteromonogamy, you can't accuse either Wild Things or Cruel Intentions of real sexual subversion, because the former has no relationship to reality, and the latter punishes pretty much everyone who dared to defy the concept that sex should be saved for one's one true love. What was potentially dangerous about depicting teens having wild sex lives in these movies, with casts full of performers in their 20s, was that they sold the idea that 16-year-olds are essentially adults, when there is in fact a wide range of rates of development and few actual teenagers have the adult bodies of a Denise Richards or Sarah Michelle Gellar, let alone the self-possession and sexual maturity of the characters they played on screen. But within a few months, a new star would emerge who would send cultural consumption of teen sexuality into a whole new direction, in part because she was actually a teenager. Though the Spice Girls had helped to reinvigorate pop music as a genre in 1996, when 15-year-old Britney Spears was signed to Jive Records the following year, there hadn't been a major new solo female pop artist in a while. This was a very significant moment in pop history, the signing of Britney Spears as a sort of girl-next-door teenager, rather than as a Whitney Houston-esque diva, said culture writer John Seabrook. Seabrook added that from the perspective of the notoriously stingy record company, Britney seemed like she would be cheap, too, because she was just a teenager from Louisiana and wasn't demanding in any way. There is some implied racism here. This record company had decided that somebody like Whitney Houston, one of the highest-selling recording artists of all time, who had hit the peak of her career just four years earlier, was perceived as demanding more than she deserved. And they preferred a white child from the South who, it was assumed, would be easier to push around. In fact, the song that would make Britney a star was actually written for Black artists. Max Martin, the Swedish impresario who crafted several hits for the Backstreet Boys, wrote Baby One More Time for TLC. The group rejected the song in part because of the submissive message that seemed to be at its core. As TLC's t Boz put it, I was like, I like the song, but do I think it's a hit? Do I think it's TLC? I'm not saying hit me, baby. No disrespect to Britney, it's good for her. But was I going to say hit me, baby, one more time? Hell no. Max Martin had not meant to write a song in the voice of a victim asking her baby to hit her again. 
He simply didn't have a fluent grasp of English and thought everyone would understand that hit me meant hit me up on the phone or give me more attention. The record company asked if they could change the word hit, but Martin refused to change the lyric. Another older man working on the Britney Spears project proved more open to collaboration. Nigel Dick had been directing music videos since the beginning of MTV and was responsible for image-defining videos for artists as diverse as Guns N' Roses, Oasis, The Backstreet Boys, and Celine Dion. Dick's idea for the Baby One More Time video sounds a little like the video for Opposites Attract, except instead of Paula Abdul dancing with a cartoon cat, Britney would have gone to space with animated characters that looked like Power Rangers. The story goes that she saw the treatment and thought it was lame and offered her own idea. She would play a bored student who daydreams about breaking free from class and dancing in the high school's halls. Your initial reaction to this is, I'm being told by a 16-year-old girl what I should do, Dick said later. Then he rationalized. This girl is 16 and I'm a grown man. Perhaps she has a better perspective on her audience than I do. So I swallowed my pride. When Dick suggested she would be wearing a t-shirt and jeans in class, Brittany suggested a Catholic schoolgirl uniform. When she showed up on set, she thought the blouse she was supposed to wear looked, in her word, dorky, so she tied it above her midriff. As Dick recalled, she genuinely wanted to go down that road. It wasn't like we pushed Brittany into doing anything. Most of the time, you had to hold her back a bit. This was the standard line from the middle-aged men who worked with Brittany. They wanted her to project wholesome virginity, but she kept wanting to look sexier. As her manager, Larry Rudolph, put it, the record company wanted to keep things squeaky clean and she went along with it at first, but it quickly became clear it wasn't natural for her. A later Rolling Stone article accused Rudolph of marketing her as the teenage Lolita of middle-aged men's dreams. But Rolling Stone had been incredibly complicit in this marketing. An early landmark in Britney's career was appearing on the cover of the magazine for the first time in April 1999. At the beginning of the story, writer Stephen Daly explains that the apparent promise implied by her ample chest and receptive smile are a trap. He seems to be heading down the same road as Tad Friend writing about Adrian Lyons' Lolita in Vogue, which you may remember from our last episode. Friend cautioned that men shouldn't fall for the seductions of teenage girls because while they may look and move like nascent Sharon Stones, they don't have any idea what it all means. Daly presents Spears as a girl who, if she has any idea or not, refuses to acknowledge that her self-expression looks to others like a come on. The first time he quotes her in the piece, she's both taking credit for exposing her midriff in the Baby One More Time video, and also insisting that doing so was not, in fact, akin to stripping. All I did was tie up my shirt, she says, adding, I'm wearing a sports bra under it. Daly goes on to suggest that she's in denial about the messages conveyed by her massive first hit single, 
quoting Brittany as saying, it doesn't mean physically hit me. It means just give me a sign, basically. I think it's kind of funny that people would actually think that's what it meant. Daly also quotes Spears as saying that she successfully petitioned Max Martin to change the lyrics to a different song, one called Born to Make You Happy, because, quote, it was a sexual song. I said, this may be a little old for me. She tells Daly she watched one episode of South Park, which she critiqued as sacrilegious. And Daly wrote that the record company would be disappointed if Spears' album didn't sell 4 million copies in the U.S. Within 10 months, it had sold 18 million worldwide. But nothing in the article was as provocative or memorable as the photos shot by David LaChapelle in and around the Spears family home in Kentwood, Louisiana. The cover image, in which Spears wears a white blouse unbuttoned to show a black bra and white silk boy short panties while clutching a phone in one hand and a Teletubby in another hand, was glossy editorial compared to the images inside the magazine, which merged the documentary prurience of Larry Clark with an apparently significant hair and makeup budget. In the most obviously staged image, Brittany straddles a pink bicycle, looking back at the camera, which is focused on her white short shorts, on which the word baby is spelled out on one butt cheek. There are also pictures of Brittany in a cardigan open over a white bra and short shorts, standing in her childhood bedroom surrounded by stuffed animals and dolls, and another of her dressed in a blue satin micro mini and bandeau top, dancing in her family's TV room as though she's at a club. Her then eight-year-old sister, Jamie Lynn, is also in the shot, dancing off to one side in an oversized t-shirt tied up over her leggings, as if representing the generation of girls younger than Brittany who saw her as an idol. The bottom of the frame is occupied by the eldest Spears sibling, brother Brian, who lies on the carpet shirtless with a TV remote in his hand, pointed at his older sister, a stand-in for every young man who could conjure Brittany as a fantasy object with the click of a button. As much as Brittany was styled in these photos, which were shot just before her 17th birthday, to titillate, and particularly to activate that specific 90s Lolita fantasy of the child who will seduce you into forgetting that having sex with her is legally and ethically out of bounds, there is some restraint in how Brittany was being presented. Her midriff may be bare in most of these photos, but she is wearing clothes, unlike 17-year-old Drew Barrymore on the cover of Interview magazine seven years earlier. Drew's Bruce Weber shoot was designed to send the message that she was all grown up while still offering a glimpse at a nude body that wasn't quite 18 years old. The La Chapelle Brittany photos seem intent on reminding the viewer that you're looking at a child while pushing adult sexuality into the spaces of childhood. Three months after the Rolling Stone cover, the New York Times ran a review of a brief concert Brittany gave in July 1999 in Woodstock, New York. The review was by Neil Strauss, a rock critic who at that point was known for co-writing Marilyn Manson's autobiography, and who would go on to write The Game, about becoming a pickup artist guru under the name Style. But back in 1999, 
he seemed earnestly concerned about the sexuality that 17-year-old Spears was projecting. Despite her young following, Ms. Spears's music and image is shot through with a strange ambiguity, Strauss wrote. It's not just her looks, simultaneously sexual and pre-sexual. That look is emphasized in her first video, in which she wears a slightly raunched-up schoolgirl outfit, and in her stage show on Sunday, for which she wore a pink spandex tube top so slick it looked wet. It's also her lyrics. In her first single, Baby One More Time, she begs a lover to come back, singing, Give me a sign, hit me baby one more time. Strauss notes that the ideas in Britney's songs, quote, the hitting, the fear, the implication that when Ms. Spears says no, she means yes, were written for Ms. Spears by male collaborators, and each one said the same thing. You can leave her, break her heart, and mentally, if not physically, abuse her, but just call out her name as she sings, and she'll be right back by your side loving you. Neil Strauss is a funny person to have been the canary in the coal mine on this topic, and his review stands out because so much other writing on Spears at this time seemed to bend over backwards to rationalize the idea that Britney Spears was not being exploited. Remember last week when I talked about how the John Benet Ramsey murder gave the culture an excuse to obsess over a sexualized child under the protective guise of being shocked and appalled that anyone would sexualize a child? Early Britney Spears mania could take a similar form in that there was a lot of questioning as to whether or not her presentation of teen sexuality was appropriate. But just asking the question seemed to be enough to assuage most adult guilt. When People magazine put Britney on their cover in February 2000 under the headline, Too Sexy Too Soon, they went to, who else, Camille Paglia for analysis. Quote, She is a glorified 1950s high school cheerleader with an undertone of perverse 1990s sexuality. Britney is simultaneously wholesome and ripely sensual. She's Lolita on aerobics. Here, of course, Paglia is forwarding the idea that Lolita was the sexual predator, which we know was not uncommon at the time. As an astute reader of texts, she definitely knew better. As a self-promoter and hype woman for the idea that human sexuality is an untamable force, she was right on target. Just as recasting Lolita as a seductress is a way of saying that she can't be a victim and that if she seems to want it, it's fine, there was much effort to say that Brittany was cheerfully complicit in her own sexualization, so none of the adults working with her or watching her had any culpability. A dozen years after his photos of Brittany ran alongside her first Rolling Stone profile, David LaChapelle gave an interview in which he described the photo shoot as a collaboration between he and his then 16-year-old subject. Quote, I said to her, you don't want to be buttoned up like Debbie Gibson. Let's push it further and do this whole Lolita thing. She got it. She knew it would get people talking and excited. The photographer went on to describe something that happened when he was shooting Britney in her childhood bedroom at 2 a.m., ostensibly trying to get the shot of her with her exposed bra in front of all of her toys. 
When manager Larry Rudolph suddenly walked in and asked what was going on, according to LaChapelle, Brittany acted shy and said, Yeah, I don't feel comfortable. At first, I felt betrayed, he recalled. But as soon as Larry walked out, Brittany said, Lock the door, and unbuttoned her shirt wide open. This was very different from how Brittany told this story. Four years after the shoot, she said of La Chapelle, he came in and did the photos and totally tricked me. They were really cool, but I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. And to be honest with you, at the time I was 16, so I really didn't. I was back in my bedroom and I had my little sweater on and he was like, undo your sweater a little bit more. The whole thing was about me being into dolls and in my naive mind, I was like, here are my dolls. And now I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, what the hell? During Britney's first flush of fame, most press coverage suggested that it was teens and younger kids who were driving the frenzy around Britney and films about sexy teens like Cruel Intentions. To quote the controversial 1999 Rolling Stone cover story, Teen spending power is reshaping pop culture, filling our TV screens with teen dramas and our multiplexes with teen movies. It has also put a perky new beat on the pop charts, where the devotional vaporings of boy bands have vanquished the rolling rock angst of the early to mid-90s. But Britney and her fellow stars were always, necessarily, performing teenagehood as represented through an adult gaze. An adult photographer or video director, an adult journalist or magazine editor, adults marketing movies and records and TV shows. It was adults who seemed desperate to know whether or not Britney was having sex, as evidenced by this clip from a 2000 appearance on Access Hollywood. You hope that you'll remain a virgin until you get married. Yeah. Yeah, my mom always told me, once you have sex with a guy that, you know, you're with or whatever, it's like so many more emotions are involved and everything gets, like, you know, crazy and twisted. That's what Britney told me last August. Nine months later, Us Weekly's Todd Gold posed the same question, and she said, quote, I want to wait to have sex until I'm married. I do. I want to wait. A magazine like Entertainment Weekly might comment on how the point of this gaze was to exploit someone like Britney as a commodity, but rarely dwelt on the fact that a lot of the customers for this commodity and the people shaping the products were not young. Rolling Stone has not been a magazine for children or teenagers, maybe ever. But as someone who was a teenager in the 1990s, I can tell you that during that decade, Rolling Stone did not seem like it was for me. It seemed like it was boring and for the olds. It certainly was not doing a more effective job of speaking to or for the youth in 2008, when Rolling Stone put Britney on their cover twice, once in February to vividly dissect her downfall in a piece by Vanessa Gregoriadis called The Tragedy of Britney Spears, and then again in December to herald her comeback, while also cautiously detailing the terms of a brand new conservatorship that allowed her father to control her life in an article titled, Britney Spears Returns. The tragedy story begins with Britney yelling profanities when her credit card is declined at a Betsy Johnson store in a mall in the Valley, which she showed up at with her boyfriend at the time, 
a paparazzo who she had met when he was tailing her with his camera. According to Gregoriadis, this day was emblematic of any in that year of Britney's life, during which she was undergoing, quote, the most public downfall of any star in history. Gregoriadis also describes Britney as, quote, an inbred swamp thing who chain smokes, doesn't do her nails, tells reporters to eat it, snort it, lick it, fuck it, and screams at people who want pictures for their little sisters. She is not someone who can live by the most basic social rules. She's the perfect celebrity for America in decline. Like President Bush, she just doesn't give a fuck, but at least we won't have to clean up after her mess for the rest of our lives. If you think this comparison is wild, scroll down to later in the article, where Harvey Levin of TMZ explains Spears' importance to his brand by saying, she's our President Bush. It's hard to understand, seven years after Donald Trump was elected president, thinking that the signature of George W. Bush as president was that he didn't give a fuck. Also, I don't like to speculate as to what anyone will be doing for the rest of their lives, but 15 years after that article was published, there are many people out there who think of Britney Spears, with varying degrees of empathy, as a mess that still has not been cleaned up. At its most empathetic, Gregoriadis's piece gives the sense of a young woman who never had a chance. Put in a position where she needed to inoculate the sexuality of her persona by saying it was all an act and that she intended to save herself for marriage, when in actuality she was having sex with boyfriend Justin Timberlake, as he revealed after their breakup, and she had lost her virginity before she became famous, as her mother revealed in a book. Her identity was so fractured between what she was pretending to be and who she was that she lost any perspective on her true self. She is not book smart, Gregoriadis writes, but she is intelligent enough to understand what the world wanted of her, that she was created as a virgin to be deflowered before us for our amusement and titillation. It was easier to see that in hindsight, once Britney had stopped playing into the fantasy that had sold so well for so long. But even in some of her earliest press coverage, Britney was speaking candidly about the price she paid for being the target of attention that was very sexual in nature and most often directed at her by older people. The Too Sexy Too Soon people cover included this startling quote from Britney herself. There are days when I go back to my hotel room and cry for no reason. The same paragraph goes on to detail some reasons why a newly 18-year-old girl might cry. Like the night when she was standing on the balcony of her room at the Four Seasons, talking to her mom on the phone, when she realized an older man was leering at her from the next balcony. The balconies were really close and it freaked me out. I ran inside and I was like, oh God, mama, I'm so scared. She also talks about feeling uncomfortable, unwanted attention from older men in nightclubs. When I just want to dance and there's a lot of drunk guys standing there staring at me, it's like, ew. I have to say, the older fans are creepy. The 40-year-olds, people who are in your face too much. She was saying plainly, how she felt about this kind of attention. 
This doesn't mean that she didn't like feeling sexy or didn't make some of the decisions about how to present her body that were attributed to her. But there is a difference between teenagers experimenting with and expressing their sexuality amongst themselves in ways that they feel comfortable doing and teenagers performing sexuality as a job for an audience that turns out to be partially comprised of leering and or judgmental older people. This hit a peak when Britney, then 19, appeared in a Pepsi commercial that debuted during the 2001 Oscars. In the ad, shots of Britney dancing in various midriff-bearing outfits are alternated with images of people in various situations watching the ad on TV in awe. A young fry cook lets his kitchen burn while staring slack-jawed. Men in a retirement home pass the oxygen tank. A crew at the Coke bottling plant tune in too. But the punchline comes from Congressman Bob Dole, who you may remember from his 1996 presidential campaign promises to crack down on sexuality in media, and who, at that moment, was better known for his TV ads for Viagra. Dole is seen watching Britney with his dog, and when the song ends, the dog, and then Dole, react. Easy, boy. The Entertainment Weekly article predicting the waning of the teen boom came out three months later and pegged this commercial as a key moment. Kids were now forced to face it, that this culture that they had believed was for them was in fact being consumed by olds. And that was kind of gross. Or as the magazine put it, if you weren't turned off by dad smiling at Britney, then Bob Dole doing it should seal the deal. But the focus on youth and pop culture continued, and for Britney, the cracks didn't begin to show until 2002, when Justin Timberlake took the upper hand in their very public breakup by implying that Britney, who for so long had thread a needle between a sexual performance persona and proclaimed real-life chastity, had cheated on him. She was not quite 21 at the time, and for the most part, she was painted as a slut and a fraud based on Timberlake's spoken and sung testimony alone. A year later came the MTV Video Music Awards performance, in which Britney and fellow former Mouseketeer Christina Aguilera joined Madonna on stage to sing Like a Virgin and to French kiss the elder stateswoman of pop erotic shock a spectacle that got plenty of the attention which it felt a little desperate for. A few months after that, Spears publicly hooked up with her backup dancer, Kevin Federline, who left his pregnant girlfriend for Britney. The pair would marry before the end of 2004, but the illusions on which Britney's career had been built were now shattered. She was still only 22, but there were new kids coming up to feed a culture that was, if anything, more rabidly interested in teenage virgins than ever. Connie Chung was asking the Olsen twins to confirm their virginity on national TV. Lindsay Lohan, 17, became a movie star with Mean Girls in early 2004, then pretty much the day she turned 18 that July, began party hopping with her new boyfriend, serial teen dater Wilmer Valderrama. 
Lohan would never have another box office hit. Her personal life and personal problems became an international sensation that usurped anything she tried to do as an artist. Entertainment Weekly's 2001 prediction was right in that the specific teen boom they were talking about didn't last much longer. All of the stars involved needed to learn how to evolve with age, and some did it a lot more gracefully than others. But there was a lasting impact. In 2004, though the top four highest grossing movies of the year were essentially for kids, there were adult movies in the top 10, including Ocean's 12 and Troy. The following year, the only top 10 hits that you might pause before showing to a child were Mr. and Mrs. Smith and Hitch. By 2006, every movie in the North American box office top 10 was either a franchise film or animated, and there was nothing rated higher than PG-13. This was, and remains, the sweet spot for theatrical releases because it excludes no one. Except for audiences that are actually looking for adult material. In the late 90s and early 2000s, there was plenty of sex to consume outside of the movies. In tabloid stories about stars like Britney, in cable news coverage of Bill Clinton, in the exploding world of internet porn, and it became axiomatic that it wasn't good business to put sex on movie screens. Of course, there were exceptions. But after the movie we're going to talk about next week, those exceptions were fewer and further between. Next week, we are finally talking about Eyes Wide Shut. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. Did you know that we have merch? At youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop, you can buy You Must Remember This hats, totes, coffee mugs, and t-shirts, as well as copies of my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, signed by me. Get yours today at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. 
Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 